0: Edgar Allan Poe thought that the deepest human emotion was that of grief at the eternal loss of unconsummated love, the grief of a person who forever lost the one they loved just before they were to become one in marriage. He commemorated that thought in the famous poem, The Raven. But Poe was wrong because this thought was confined to this earthly existence which is necessarily dominated by the reality of death. Any faith, and everyone has faith, because everyone thinks and believes something, any faith that is limited to this life is necessarily hopeless in the end. And the greater your faith is in anything in this world, the deeper your hopelessness will be the people who most expect to receive satisfaction from this life are liable to become the most bitter when that satisfaction fails. For that reason, the Apostle Paul says that if the Christian faith, which clearly has the highest expectations for the human race, is a faith confined to this world alone, then Christians are in the worst off of conditions. 1 Corinthians 15:19 If in Christ we have hope in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied. But of course Poe is fatally wrong in his thinking for the human race has a destiny beyond this earthly existence. This means that this present world is but the prelude brief prelude to eternity. And therefore, the deepest human emotion, I would argue, is also the highest, the widest, longest, and that emotion is the endless exaltation of human beings who are glorified in the triune God whose image they reflect. So that means to be spiritually born and made alive in Christ is to begin to know now in this fallen world that victorious elation which will be eternally yours in the presence of your God. This is part of the reason that our text this morning calls you, who are God's child, to rejoice. So let's turn together to the book of Zechariah. For our text this morning, Zechariah verses 9 and 10. We're continuing the series in... uh, scriptures used in the oratorio messiah and that brings us to this uh, selection which is sung by a soprano voice so let's hear uh, these beautiful words as a message for us today from god himself rejoice greatly o daughter of zion shout aloud o daughter of jerusalem Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations." His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. There's an awful lot packed into these uh, brief lines. Uh, Some beautiful imagery is found here, as well as some important uh, exhortation for us. You've noticed already the imagery of God's people as his daughter. Uh, This is not unique. Uh, to this passage. For instance, Zephaniah uses this imagery in his uh, book of prophecy, Zephaniah chapter 3, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. He goes on to include some of the themes we see in our text as well. For instance, he says a little bit later on, The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. He says again, Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And We see it in the Psalms as well, in Psalm 48. Speaking in praise to God, the psalmist says, Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. In Psalm 97, beginning of verse 8, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. For you, O Yahweh, are most high over all the earth. God's people are then addressed in our text as the daughter of Zion the daughter of Jerusalem the two images uh, go hand in hand and the kingly imagery of this text also reflects a previous passages describing the king promised to the covenant people of God so we've got the daughter of Zion expecting her king we see this prophesied in Genesis uh, 49 in the words that Jacob gave to his sons on his Deathbed, he spoke this word of promise to Judah, and of course speaking through him to the tribe that would come from him and ultimately to the Savior who would come in Judah's line. Jacob said this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And he uses an interesting image that we see reflected in our text as well. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until a tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Or we could go to Psalm 72, which is uh, filled with kingly imagery addressed, as it were, concerning a king, and of course this is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus as well. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people on the hills in righteousness. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. That passage probably drawn upon by Zechariah in our text. Or we could go to Isaiah for an image of the rejoicing at the coming of the Messiah who will bring peace. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And later imagery that we've looked at also reflects our text. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And it's that passage then that we go on to hear the names of Jesus culminating with the name Prince of Peace. And we're told of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You are called then, as a member of the daughter of Zion, as a citizen who is numbered among those who are called the daughter of Jerusalem here to rejoice, to rejoice greatly. And in fact, the second uh, verb there used, translated here, shout aloud, is the Is the uh, exulting in battle after battle? It's a victorious cry. Okay, it's the rejoicing that comes after the battle has been decisively won. That's the joy that you are called to as God's people, and that joy is based upon who your King is. Don't don't lose sight of that. Remember, as as a follower of Christ, your joy is not based in this world. It's It's not dependent upon you fulfilling your dreams for this life. Your joy as a believer should be rooted firmly in who is your king. The daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem rejoices because... For a king is coming. Your king is coming to you. And what kind of a king is that? You know, we in this earthly sphere don't welcome the coming of authority at times. Right? Uh, we, we know that authority in this earthly realm is often marred by sin. And even today, as we prayed for Christians who were persecuted a couple of minutes ago, you know, there are Christians who live under authority that is ungodly, that is giving them over to violence and persecution. So we don't look for our help from an earthly government, from an earthly king. We don't look to politics as the basis for our well-being. No, we look to this kind of a king that Zechariah is describing here. He is, first of all, righteous. He is a righteous king. Are you grateful that the ultimate authority in your life as a believer is a righteous ruler? You can be sure that everything he does, everything he purposes is right. And surely that's a reason for rejoicing, right? Rejoicing in the righteousness of God. And you rejoice because that righteousness is coupled with salvation. See the connection there? And again, that's not something that's unique to Zechariah. For instance, in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 8, listen to the connection that that Isaiah makes between righteousness and salvation here. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, Yahweh, have created it. There's a connection between righteousness and salvation, and especially... That's important to you because you're a sinner, right? You can only be saved from the wrath of God because your sin justly deserves that wrath. You can only be saved from that by one who is himself righteousness. Again, quoting from Isaiah chapter 46 this time. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation In Zion, for Israel, my glory. All the promises made to the nation Israel, you see reflected in our text, to the Levitical priesthood and to David are all completely fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one Israelite who kept covenant with Yahweh. He is the one priest who made effective atonement, and he is the one king who is both Lord and Savior of his people. Jeremiah expresses it this way in chapter 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem would dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. A literal interpretation, in fact, of the the verb in our text. my translation, it has having salvation there in verse 9. Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Literally, the text says there, he is righteous and saved. Now, we're not accustomed to thinking of the Messiah as one who himself is saved. If he is righteous, then he certainly does not need to be saved from the wrath of God against sin. right? So he doesn't need to be saved like us in that sense. Why then would the prophet be inspired to speak of him as a king who is saved? Well, perhaps we can be helped in our understanding by by recalling a passage from the book of Hebrews. This is Hebrews chapter 5, describing Jesus in his incarnation, beginning at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, that is his life on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Where was it that that Jesus prayed with such intensity and passion? Well, I'm sure your, your thoughts go to the Garden of Gethsemane and his prayers prior to his suffering the wrath of God and his voluntary suffering and death. This is how it's recorded in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus said to his disciples, uh, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. In other words, pray with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Matthew tells us that he prays that. Then for a second time, having awakened the disciples, he prays it again. And then for a third time, after finding them sleeping once again, prayed, using the same words. Hebrews tells us, then, that Jesus' prayers to him who is able to save him from death were heard because of his reverence, that is, his holiness. Now, obviously, that did not result in his being spared the agony and death that he endured. So what does it mean when when the writer of Hebrews says that his prayers were heard. Well, I think they're heard, of course, in Jesus' resurrection. Peter says this in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, God raised him, that is Jesus, up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. As one who is righteous and undeserving of the death the Son brings, death could not hold him father answered his prayers through the resurrection. So John Calvin interprets our text literally, saying that Jesus is saved, which is in accordance with the text, but he goes on to make the point that Jesus is not saved merely for his sake. He's not like a king that's saved from danger for his sake. He's rather one who is saved for the sake of his people. In other words, his salvation From death by resurrection is a salvation that he earned for all those who are united with him in faith, those for whom he died. I think Jesus reflects this in his words to Martha in John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You see the connection then in our text being made between the king and his people, between you and your Lord. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 6, If we have been united with him in a death like his, if we have died to sin through repentance confession of sin and trusting in him alone, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And Paul makes the point that that life begins now. It's not something that doesn't begin until after death. And so Paul tells you, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin now and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So you're alive now based upon the resurrection work of Jesus Christ and the spirit that he sent to make you alive. And so by Christ being raised from the dead, he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So in our text then, your king is the one who possesses righteousness. Your king is the one who merited his triumph, his victory over sin and death. And he comes to you in humility. Look at how that's emphasized in our text uh, with repeated, uh, the repeated image of his riding upon a humble beast of burden rather than a war horse. And, of course, we see this quoted in the New Testament as fulfilled in Jesus' entry into Jerusalem just days before he was to be crucified. The Messiah speaks peace. He comes in peace to make atonement for his people. Isaiah chapter 51 my righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. In other words, it is acted. In my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. My salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. My righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. So the humble king, who is righteous and has salvation, comes to extend that righteousness and salvation to his people by his humble work. And that leads then to, in our text to verse 10, where the personal pronoun shifts to the first person. As God himself speaks, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be Cut off. So those three lines reflect the victory that God has won. He uses the term "they're cut off, which is often used in a covenantal set, uh, setting, and, and it has the, the idea of being totally separated, totally taken away. So the image then is one of war ceasing because of the victory of your king. And that then is the basis for the next three lines. He shall speak peace to the nations. It's a peace gained through his victory. Peace to the nations, the Gentiles, we could translate that. The old uh, King James that the Messiah uses says heathen, so it would pertain to anyone outside the the, uh, nation Israel. Uh, but there's a broadness being emphasized here that you can see. shall speak peace to the nations, the, the peoples from every place. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. There's a universal rule then proclaimed here. Reason for rejoicing. Reason for rejoicing. Zechariah says in chapter 2, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, before behold I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares Yahweh. And many nations shall join themselves to Yahweh in that day and shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst. The supreme reason for the rejoicing of God's people, the daughter of Zion in our text, is because their king is coming to be with them to be present with them. So there's, a, there's an image here of being united with Christ by faith, finding that place where you truly belong, and that brings not only a union with Christ, but a union with his people as well. In the letter of the, to the Ephesians, Paul describes it this way, speaking to those who are, like us, Gentiles. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you are at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The promises of the Old Testament are given to God's people, Israel, and and it seems as though the Gentiles are left out. But... Now, in Christ Jesus, he says, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He is the peace, in other words, that our text proclaims. And by establishing peace, then, that peace is with not only him, but with one another. And so Paul goes on to say that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, one man in place of Gentile and Jew, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In him you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So, your orientation is totally changed as a believer. Paul says in Colossians 3, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Have you been spiritually born as one of the people known as the daughter of Zion in our text? Have you been given citizenship among those who are called the daughter of Jerusalem Is the Messiah, Jesus, your king, the one to whom you bow the knee, the one for whom you live and die, the one whose word is the final authority in your thinking, your feeling, and your choosing on a daily basis? If your honest answer is no, then this text is for you a call to repent of your sin, because the kingdom of God is at hand, and you may at any moment be brought before the righteous judge of all the earth. But if he can answer, yes, by God's grace alone, he has brought me into repentance and faith as one of those who are the daughter of Zion and Jerusalem, then this text is for you a call to rejoicing. It is a victorious elation in what God has done for you in Christ. It's a call to righteousness, that is holiness in all your living, that you pursue in the wisdom and strength that comes from God through his word and spirit. This text is a call for you to believe that you are saved from the wrath of God that your sin deserves and saved to the glory that he will share with you. This text is a call for you to humble service to your king in every aspect of your life. It is a call for you to rest in the peace that you have been given by the one who is your sovereign Lord and has bought for you peace with himself and with his people by his victory over sin and death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, this text would be ours today, that we would be the ones who are addressed here, not because of any merit on our part, but because of your grace in making us your own, uh, making us your children. Uh, Help us to to have a confidence that is placed in you alone. We, We know we often tend to Tend to begin uh, to rely upon our own strength, our own wisdom, our own abilities. Uh, help us to remember that our strength truly is from you, that it is in you that we, that we find peace, and that is your, it is your work in us that enables us to grow in holiness. And help us to do that, Lord, in these coming days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.